This is a recording from the More Than the Score Lecture Series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. On November 22, 2008, Professor Karen Bonding with the McIntyre School of Commerce suggested ways to increase personal savings as a way of achieving long-term success. Bonding is introduced by Tom Falders, president of the UVA Alumni Association. Let me tell you a little bit about Karen. She's worked as an investment professional in the areas of investment consulting, investment analysis, portfolio management, large pension funds, and the marketing of investment services. She has organized investment conferences, developed short and long courses for novices and industry professionals, and conducted investment workshops for a variety of corporations. She has for many years been a very active member of the CFA Institute, a certified financial analyst for those of you who don't know, and participated in the grading of CFA exams since 1985, as well as worked on CFA exam questions and now serves as the Institute's standard of practice counsel. She's been an industry arbiter for NASD um, and a visiting professor at China Europe International Business School in Shanghai, China, as well as China, she taught investment management and strategy, and she taught the same course at the Institute for Industrial Policy Studies in Seoul, Korea. She now focuses mainly on personal financial areas, such as planning and advisory work, and serves on the board of directors of Credit Suisse, Funds of Hedge Funds, and Brandeis Investment Trust. I suspect she can tell you which hedge funds we should look at and which ones we should not. So Karen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here. You will notice I'm wearing black, right? This is a very difficult period that we're going through. Um, but what I'm hoping to tell you this morning is how you can score big by getting your own finances um, organized and in place. So let's get started. It is not a very long presentation. Lots of time for questions and comments, anything you would like afterwards. Who is in charge of your finances? Is it the credit card debt that's really getting you? Is that the first check you write every month? Or is it actually yourself? Who offers your financial security? Is it your job? Is it your parents? I hope not. Is it your children? I definitely hope not. It could conceivably be your spouse. But heaven forbid that it should be the government. Financial security comes from reaching goals. And there are some goals that most of us have on an ongoing basis. One of them being that should the day happen when the pink slip comes around that you have enough in the bank account to survive and you can get on to your next job. Many of us also feel the necessity to save enough so that when the medical emergency comes, uh, we can weather that storm. And then, of course, little Joey and little Janice, of course, also have to go to college. And that is not a cheap situation today. We all know that. One of the things that we want to make sure that we do when we look at financial goals is we need to differentiate between needs and wants. 
We all know we need four wheels, or most of us need four wheels. But can we do with a smaller car, or do we really have to have that Rolls-Royce? What about an abode? We know we need shelter, but can we do with this, or do we have to have this? The McMansions in Virginia, of course, are rather widespread. Well, reaching financial goals is a little bit like looking at this. We're not sure where we're going, where we're headed, what to do about it, um, and this is very confusing. So let me clear it up a little bit. What I'm going to do is um, I do this little presentation through an analogy. And so if you will bear with me as we walk through. Reaching a financial goal is like re reaching any kind of a goal, travel goal. Now, I have chosen a very simple travel goal, and the travel goal is Washington, D.C. We all know where it is. A lot of you may even have come down from there last night or today, or you go up there relatively often. But we all know Charlottesville to D.C. We know roughly how far it is and so forth. We also know that there are very many ways to do that trip. Airplane, cars, trains, bicycles, motorbikes, horses, walking, so forth and so on. Now what I'm choosing for this particular trip is a vehicle. Okay? I'm going to choose to get from Charlottesville to DC in a car. Well, I still have lots of issues because I could do 2966. And one of our friends that you're going to meet in this presentation is Joe Hybrid. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Joe chooses 29 and 66. And many of you, maybe even all of you, will be familiar with that trip. Now we meet Amanda BMW. Amanda chooses a different route. A BMW, as those of you who drive those kind of cars will know that uh, they're very handy on curves, absolutely handled beautifully. And this is what Amanda feels she can do over through the countryside. And when she gets to 95, um, she will be just fine in a BMW. While Stuart Ferrari says, no stop signs for me, I need the interstate. I'm going to go 64, 81, and 66, and a lot of you will be familiar with that. So now what we have is we have the vehicle. We now have three different courses that we can choose. Let me state up front, my vehicle to, for you to reach your financial goal is a mutual fund, or mutual funds in general. And some of you might know that there are about 8,000 mutual funds out there, so lots and lots to choose from. So the vehicle that we're choosing are mutual funds. Now what we're going to see is that there are many very different ways to do that. Whenever we go on a journey, we have to prepare ourselves. And that is no different from going from Charlottesville to D.C. 
And if you're going on any other kind of journey, some of you will go into MapQuest, and one of the requests in MapQuest is you have to tell them where you are, right? You have to have a starting point. So what we're going to do is we're going to find the suitcases, we're going to write out the plans, we're going to pack the car, we're going to make sure that we have gas in the tank, the credit card has still some room on it, uh, the tires are inflated, the dog is in the kennel, and the mail has been taken care of. So all of those things need to be done before you leave. Symbolism aside, what does that mean for you? This starting point needs scrutiny. And your scrutiny, if you want to reach a financial goal, is that you need to make a budget. Nothing happens without a budget. And part of the budget is pay yourself first. I call that an expense. Somebody calls it an investment. You can call it what you will. But if you don't pay yourself first, again, nothing is going to happen. You need to establish your net worth. And here, of course, you mainly need to look at the right side of the balance sheet, and that's your debt. Can you get rid of it? Can you close it out? Can you lower it? What can you do? You also have to figure out, how long am I going to give myself to reach this, this goal? A week, a month, a year, 10 years, whatever. The, what we look at is realistic goals versus unrealistic goals. I want to say for a down payment. This is um, what Tom did not say. I teach a personal finance class at uh, McIntyre, undergraduate business school. And um, a lot of my students, they're all fourth year students, and they will say, you know, I want to save for a down payment. Mm -mm, no, that's not good enough. You have to put a dollar figure there. Same thing with little Joey and Janice. Um, well, you know, maybe they're not going to go to college. I'll worry about it later. No, no, no. You need to worry about it now. I want to retire early. Hear that very, very often. That's not good enough either. You need to put a dollar sign behind that. In other words, you need three things in order to reach a goal. You need to have a dollar figure. How much is it going to cost me? You need to have a time frame. Again, a week, a month, 10 years, whatever. And then, which is the most difficult part, is you need to try to have an interest rate that, at which you can invest this money. Because if you don't have that, mm, makes it very difficult. And we know interest rates are all over the place today, mainly on the low side as far as savings are concerned. And that can be a real task. So here are our three friends. You meet Joe Hybrid on the right, Amanda BMW in the middle, and Stuart Ferrari on the left. Okay, They're saying goodbye to each other on the steps of the rotunda. Remember, all three have a goal of reaching DC. That's their goal. We're making this our financial goal. So, Joe Hybrid. What he does, and remember, the vehicle represents mutual funds. What he does is he buys low-cost index funds. Because what all of you also know is that when you go from Charlottesville to DC on 29, there's a stop sign now about every mile, every two miles, something like that. Sometimes they're bunched together. Every time he gets to a stoplight, 
he adds another index fund. Now, this is completely unsexy. It never gives any uh, cause for cocktail party talk. But he's making it. He's making progress. He's moving along. He's doing just fine. Now let's check in with, this is a little, I don't know if you can all see it in the back, but this is a pack of hounds, okay? For those of you who have driven over in the country, over there by Keswick and so forth, you've all seen these pack of hounds. Now what does that represent? What it represents is that a man that chose actively managed mutual funds, but she didn't really check them out. And she didn't notice that within some of those mutual funds, there were some pack of not so good hounds, like bunches of housing stocks, bunches of financial companies, and they really took a hit. And it really set her back in trying to reach her goal, just like the pack of hounds got her to stop on this trip. So she is moving along. But some of her mutual funds, for example, some would say this is a value fund. Well, yeah, value zero, right? Um, she found some of those in her portfolio. But she had chosen them. She knew what she was doing. She just now realized that she needed to pay a little bit closer attention. Well, let's meet Stuart Ferrari. What he did was, remember, he doesn't want any stop sign. He doesn't want any, any kind of stops along the way. He just wants this interstate. Well, he gave all of this money to a stockbroker. And the stockbroker said, no problem, I'll take care of you. Now, a stockbroker can really only sell mutual funds with a load. Okay, he said, that's fine. I trust you, I know you'll do well. So he was paying a load and a lot of other expenses, which we'll see in a minute. The problem, of course, for him was on 81, some of you know that road as well, he got behind the trucks, he got at a standstill, there was an accident. His broker had his own pocket in mind, not Stuart's pocket in mind. And pretty soon, the broker left and he got his yacht Stuart didn't get the yacht. Um, he got another broker, new funds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he is now getting pretty anxious, and he needs to get to DC, so he's speeding up. <laughs> and the blue lights are flashing. Well, he's actually pretty lucky, because the police only gave him a warning. But what was the warning? The warning was, you're paying way too much, and you're not getting enough for it. A broker generally will line his own pockets, look after his own financial goals rather than yours. Stewart is paying loads on mutual funds. He's paying up to 1% in 12B1 fees, which is an um, internal kind of marketing fee. He's also having to pay an asset management fee, which is usually 1% of assets. We're, we're depleting Stuart's asset here pretty quickly. Capital gains on high turnover funds 
And if some of you want me to talk about Leg Mason's value fund, when I'm done with this presentation, I'll be very happy to do so, because some of you might own that. And that goes right into this capital gains taxes. So finally, the police says, you got to make a change. Well, remember, Stewart is on this road. He can't change. He's got to get to DC before he can make any other changes. Well, Amanda and Joe and Stewart eventually get to DC and they meet up again. They all reach their financial goals, but very differently. They stuck to their plan. How we reach our goal is not so much the point. The point is we have a plan and we stick to that plan. And you will see here, this is also a little faint, but again, you will see uh, the trophy and all. How can you score big? Who did you identify with? Did you identify with Joe Hybrid, Amanda BMW, or Stuart Ferrari? Do you want to be passive? In other words, for your big financial goals, do you just want to use mutual funds? If that's your decision, then you still have some additional decisions to make, whether you want to be active, passive, or a little bit of both. Here's Joe with the passive, Amanda with the active managed funds, and then, of course, Stuart with just simply letting somebody else, totally giving discretion uh, for, his, um, for his goals. The most important thing is that you put yourself first. Remember, it's not your job, it's not your family, it's not your children, uh, it is yourself. Here are some of the companies that Stuart might have chosen. These are only examples I'm making, absolutely no recommendations in this presentation here. These are some choices that Amanda might have used. All of these have online brokerage services and um, she could use any of those to make her uh, choices. And then Joe Hybrid's choices would probably be in one of these three companies where he can go directly. He doesn't have to pay an agent. He doesn't have to pay a, pay a broker. So to score big, you can use whatever route, you can choose whatever vehicle, but by all means set yourself a financial goal. And let me get to the next to last point. Most of us work for someone else. Not everybody, but most of us work for somebody else. In other words, the word income is decided by somebody else, right? Decided by your employer. The word on the left is completely and utterly up to you. And if you don't control your expenses, expenses are going to control you. That's not a position you want to be in. We've got many important things in this country, and one of them is that we're capable of taking care of ourselves and uh, can live, hopefully, a good and productive life and reach our financial goals. Go who's. So I didn't talk about the financial crisis, as you know, because it doesn't matter. 
we have, remember we had a recession just a few years ago? Remember we had a recession in 91? Remember we had a re two recessions in the 80s? This too shall pass. Your long-term financial goals transcend any kind of recession, um, currency crisis like we had in the 90s and so forth. Um, so this uh, presentation, although I appreciate Tom's comment, uh, it, it might be a good time, but maybe it is a very good time to kind of, for all of us, get back to basics and say, hmm, there are some things here that I hadn't thought about or I'd missed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I do need to get back to basic. And the differentiation between needs and wants may be one of the more important aspects, uh, but obviously the expense is less than income. We need to live below our means, and I can't say it any other way. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Starting out, paying yourself first. What three ways would you suggest they go about paying himself or herself first? Great question. Thank you. Uh, first of all, uh, a lot of us grew up in the time period when we heard that uh, you should save at least 10% of your salary, right? A lot of you can kind of identify with that. It was a rule of thumb type of thing. It doesn't go, it doesn't go anywhere anymore. We need to save 15%. So one of the things I tell my students, for example, is 15% of your gross salary, gross salary, has to be saved every month. Okay. Now, then comes, well, what are the priorities? What am I going to do with this 15%? Tell me where to put it. Well, the first thing is, of course, that uh, for uh, young people working, uh, if they have any kind of tax-deferred retirement plan at their job with a match, with a match, in other words, they put in 3%, the company puts in 3%, as an example, then that should be, that's the first, that's priority number one, okay? Priority number two is to fund your Roth IRA. For a young person today, that's $5,000 a year. They don't have to do the whole thing, but you know, just get it started. And then the number three out of the 15% is, of course, they got to get these emergency funds set up. Remember the pink slip, right? Uh, what was it, 1.2 million jobs already lost this year or something like that. I mean, it's a big number. And we all need to be prepared for the day when um, we suddenly don't have an income from our job anymore. And because the only way that you can survive a job loss is if you have money. So you have options. You have options to move to another town. You have options to maybe take additional training, an additional course, or whatever it might be. You can't do that without money. It just doesn't work without money. So money isn't an end in itself, but it's like a financial security blanket, if you will. Does that help you? Okay. Do you have any guidelines that you should bite the bullet about poorly performing funds? Yeah, it's a really tough thing. And, and um, poorly performing funds, uh, what can I say? They're all poorly performing at the moment. <laughs> Um, if they're in a retirement account, you could sell them and take the loss, except that you can't take the loss on your 1040. So it becomes a realized loss, but what for kind of thing. 
some people say, I'm just going to get out of equities. I can't sleep at night. It's, it's just not for me anymore. Problem is, however, that unless you're in your 80s or 90s, at which point you probably don't have too many equities anymore, when are you going to get back in? It's a two-decision decision, and a lot of people forget that. It's easy to say, I'm going to sell everything. I can't stand it anymore. I, I wake up in a cold sweat at night, and, and I'm not going to argue with that. My question to you is, when are you going to get back in? And what's going to determine that? Because you don't want to miss the upturn. Like I say, we've all been through many recessions. This isn't the first. Maybe the most severe in, in our lifetimes, I'm not sure. We don't know that yet. But um, you've got to think about the second step. So the key thing here, of course, is what I'm hoping all of you have is diversification, that you have bonds, you have stocks. Um, most of you have real estate, although that real estate might be your home. Um, but um, we just, you know, we sort of have to live through it. The media is in a frenzy. The media is in a frenzy, and that is part of what's impacting you. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Did I answer your question, sir? Thank you. Talk a little bit about how you see the uh, amount of information, the availability, the speed with which information is available impacting what happens. In the yeah, and, and you know that in fact is is um, it's a, I mean it's one of the reasons that I use mutual funds as my vehicle. Okay. Some of you in this audience have heard something called the efficient market hypothesis. That's three really big words: efficient market hypothesis. What that means is that information is so instantaneously embedded in the market that for peons like you and me that just sit at home, we have no way of reacting to that before the professionals have already reacted to it, okay? Which is what speaks for index funds. Because in index funds, you are buying the market. You're not making decisions like uh, the broker for Stewart or Amanda in her actively managed mutual fund. You're not making those decisions thinking that somebody can outperform the market. So that is what speaks for mutual funds. That is why uh, some of the, excuse me, for index funds. That's why some of the index funds, of course, have gotten very, very large. And for those of you who are not yet familiar with exchange-traded funds, which are index funds, I strongly encourage you, take a look at them. Go online. Exchange-traded funds are index funds, but they're traded during the day like stocks. And you can get an index on water utilities, or you can get an index on regional banks, or you can get an index on the total United States stock market. So they come from way out here to rather narrow index funds. But they're really nice because they are diversified, so you can kind of get within an industry or a country for that matter. If nobody has the question on the Lake Mason value fund, let me just explain real quickly. Because for those of you out there who have actively managed mutual funds, this can happen to you. Bill Miller's 
uh, value fund at Lake Mason. Had a phenomenal streak for 14 years. It beat the S&P 500 index after expenses every single year. Okay? Last year it did not, and I believe the year before it did not either. Well, you know, it's not a big deal. Nobody is perfect. This year, big time, his fund is down over 60-some percent, which is quite considerably more than the market. He, his fund, sorry, will be distributing capital gains on which you will have to pay tax. And you say, wait a minute. My fund value is down 60% from January 1, and I'm having to pay taxes on this fund. What is going on? Well, what's going on is that people are taking their money out of this fund because of his poor performance. And so he's selling those stocks on which he has capital gains, like Amazon.com. Beware, I'm just telling you, if you have actively managed fund and you think, oh my gosh, I mean, this value is down so much, you will still get hit by capital gains. So one way to avoid that is, if you don't like the fund anymore anyway, get out of it, okay? Then you don't have to pay the capital gains tax. But it's just kind of a warning. This is one of the things that can happen. It doesn't happen in index funds because an index is an index is an index. And whatever the companies are that are in there, stay in there. So you don't, again, this again speaks for index funds, lower expenses, you can go directly, you know you own the market, and um, there are no capital gains taxes to pay. Did I all give you a cold shower this morning? <laughs> In case you didn't have one before you left. Anyway, I, you know, I'm sorry. I sometimes, and, and my students also say this, my course is not necessarily, uh, and I'm not necessarily a purveyor of good news. Uh, but reality is hard sometimes. And, and so um, we, we, it's better that we face it and we know what it is than we're just kind of, ah, it's out there. I'm not going to deal with it. Market. But overall, do you have a philosophy about paying down mortgages early versus investing? Yeah. One of the um, things that's real, in, in my view, one of the things that's really important, if you look at your expenses, generally, the very largest expense on a monthly basis is your mortgage or your rent, correct? And it's usually, at least in the beginning of your career, it's 30 to 40% or so of your take-home pay, something like that. Okay, so it's the largest expense. Housing is the largest expense you have. Well, as far as I'm concerned, when I retire, I don't want that expense anymore. Because I may have other things to worry about, like my health, travel, other things that I want to do. So on the day you retire, your mortgage should be done with, overdone with. Some of you will say, um, I don't think so, because I can still deduct the interest. Well, 
If you look at the way that mortgages are paid off, towards the end of a mortgage, you're mainly paying off principal, very little interest. So that component of your mortgage payment is pretty small. And so therefore, there isn't that much of a benefit. And frankly, um, well, of course, tax rates are low right now. We don't know where they're going to be in a couple of years. But right now, tax rates are low. And so the benefit that you get even from some interest is still pretty minute. So on the day you retire, have the mortgage or one done with. That's, that's just my philosophy. Uh, because I'd like to spend my money on something else rather than my house at that point. Does that square with you, or is that the information you were looking for? Before retirement is your philosophy? No, that's fine. I mean, you can pay down. Um, in, uh, mortgage rates are still very low on a historical basis. They're in the 5 6% area. Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily hurry to pay it off. I mean, if you want to, fine. But there's no rush to do that if you have an interest rate that's that low. Yeah, there are some very good, what we call REITs, which are like mutual funds that invest in uh, real estate. REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And you can, uh, it's sort of like with stock mutual funds you can choose. You can have a REIT that only invests in commercial properties, or you can have one that does mostly apartments and, and, and housing and stuff like that. Um, and there's probably going to be a time within the next 12 months where that would be a very good time to buy those with everything being so beaten down right now. I have a 403B, which is a retirement estate, but they do not match anything. Is that still something I should continue? Yeah, that's a very good question because my, my answer to the first lady, of course, was that your first priority on pay yourself first is to get the matching from your employer. If there is no matching, um, then do as you will. I would fund, however, the Roth IRA first. And if you're 50 or above, it's $6,000 this year. If you're below 50, it's $5,000 this year. And I think that's going to go up next year. We, don't, we haven't heard yet, but they might go up. Um, because the Roth IRA, it's after-tax money. But when you start pulling it out when you're retired, there's no taxes to pay. And so this is another one of my philosophies, if you will. Um, pay your taxes now. Pay your expenses now. Again, when you're retired, there could be other expenses that get in your way. And uh, wouldn't it have been nice if you can take money out of your Roth IRA and there are no taxes to pay? You know, it's all cream, basically. So. Um, by all means, uh, if you qualify, there are some qualifications, but if you qualify, by all means, set up a Roth IRA and, and pay the tax while you're still working. If you're uh, planning to retire in, say, five or seven years, and uh, you know pretty much where you want to retire to, uh, and you have the means to afford to buy something in this depressed market, mm -hmm. um, do you think that that's a wise thing to do, or is it better to stay where you're at, invest the money in markets, people, funds, whatever, rather than in a real estate that you might use in the future? Well, um, let me ask you this then. If you're still living in state X, but you're going to state Y, and if you buy something now that might be at a very depressed value, you might be able to get a very, very good bargain 
But what are you going to do with this piece for five years? Oh, you, you can use it for vacations. It's an expensive vacation place. Look closely. Look closely. I, I am definitely one of those people. Don't buy another house before you have sold the one you're in. I, I mean, you just hear too many horror stories. That is just not a good situation to be in. And people say, well, I'll rent it. Yeah. When there are hundreds and you know, literally thousands of these buildings around. Not so good. If you can get an arrangement with someone, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I ask yourself a lot of really, really tough questions before you do that. Because this market is going to stay down for quite a while. You might have, especially if you're going to one of the warm places like Arizona, Nevada, or something like that, you, you've got lots of time. Or Florida, you've got lots of time. I wouldn't rush in. I'm sorry, that's another piece of bad news. <laughs> This year, should the minimum distribution come from stocks or bonds? Yeah, um, you know, they're, they're in the process of probably changing that in Congress. That, um, first of all, you may not have to take your required minimum distribution. For those of you who may be a little unfamiliar with this, when people are over 70 and a half, 70 and a half uh, they have to start taking distributions from IRAs or 401ks or things like that. Um, but the required distribution is calculated on the value as of December 31, 2007. And most of us know that the market was higher then than it is today. Um, so um, they're changing that because uh, that could deplete a lot of people's account. Not deplete, but really, really, really lower people's account. What I would do, sir, if I were you, look at um, the distribution. You have X percent in stocks, X percent in bonds, or however you have that split. And um, you will want to move forward in, in a conservative manner so that you might want to have more in bonds. Look at that split and how do you want to end up after you have taken your minimum distribution. I would also wait till around Christmas time because I believe that they will change the rules. That you're not going to have to take out as much as originally was told. Does that make sense? That, that's the latest I read in the Wall Street Journal this week. Right. Um, what uh, her question was: What sources of information? Uh, as far as stocks are concerned, it's relatively easy. Use ValueLine. Now, ValueLine is one page per stock, but it's a very, very busy page. Okay, lots of stuff on it. Uh, but if you're a stock picker and you enjoy that market, by all means, that's where you should go. If you're mutual funds, it's a little more difficult because Morningstar, which is uh, a common source, um, finance.yahoo.com, finance.google.com, uh, I use both of those sources. But there are some real quirks on those websites, all of those websites which again has to do with these capital gains distributions, 
um, dividend payments and, and things like that. You really have to dig in there. And I guess this again speaks for buying index funds, um, stick with the basics, and get your diversification that way. Because it's not that a mutual fund manager can't outperform the index on a gross basis. But once his fees are deducted, 80% of mutual fund managers do not outperform the market. Okay? So it, it's sort of going against you to have these actively managed funds. And that's, um, th that's just statistics. I'm not making any judgment, but that's just statistics. So if you have an actively managed, you have a manager, and you're paying him fees, then there's fees within some of these mutual funds. And some of these fees are hidden, and some are stated. Is there a formula by which you can determine, you know, what is, you know, like if, you, if you're losing money, you're mm -hmm. the fees, yeah. but, but you have to be realistic knowing that you're in it for a long term. So is there a formula up to that allow you to evaluate whether or not you're doing a wise thing, turning over this to... Yeah. I don't know that there is a formula. Um, my gut is to ask yourself, do you feel that you're getting value for the amount of money you're paying him? Okay. There's something called SMA, a separately managed accounts, and some of you may be in, one, in, in some of those. And I do a lot of financial advisory works with individuals. I mean, it just sends chills down my spine when I'm seeing people getting statements on a monthly basis that are 70 pages long. I mean, are some of you in that? Are you there? Okay. Um, you know, and it just, well, I guess they must be doing something. Yeah, right, they're doing something. You bet. But is it adding value to you? Are you actually reaching any kind of goals here? I mean, I just, well, I'll just tell you uh, an example of a client I had. She came last year, oh, two years ago, and we looked, and she had one of these separate emails accounts, and it was all over the map. And she wasn't adding to it because this was inheritance money. So it was just there, and I said, okay, now, they've got this breakdown here of so much in U.S. stock, so much in non-U.S. stock, da-da-da-da-da. Let me take the index and see if I can come up with performance for this, which is what the broker is giving you, relative to what the portfolio is doing. Okay, well, I don't need to tell you what the result was, okay? So, but the problem was, it was a lot of money. And the problem was, if she had to sell all of that and go into index funds, huge capital gains. Well, you know, there's always a good news and a bad news, right? Cup half full, cup half empty. This person procrastinated a lot. And it wasn't until this fall that she finally said, you know, Karen, I am ready. So now what has happened? Her portfolio has dropped. No more capital gains. Okay. And we can put her into index mutual funds, and she gets the upside. Now, if she had done that a year ago, 
almost to the date. Last October was the high. She would have had to pay capital gains tax. We would have put her into index fund, and she would still have seen the market drop. So in that case, her procrastination really, really worked for her. <laughs> I'm just telling you this as an example of, of how things can sometimes really work out for you. But so she's just complete, and she's going with what we call exchange-sided funds. She now, instead of having page, 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 50 or so pages on a monthly basis, she'll have one statement, one page, end of story. And she'll be fully invested. And if some of you think, if some of you have money at the moment to invest, I can't think of a better time to get into the stock market. I really honestly believe that. It is at such sale prices right now. It, it, it is as good a time as I can remember. Go to a Vanguard. They're the ones that have the most index funds. So at least there you can see what their index funds are. Um, you can go to the Fidelity website. They have one button that says index funds. You can see what theirs are. And you will find when you put in the ticker symbols, they all perform the, you know, if it's the S&P 500, obviously they all perform the same, which is what they should do. And um, expense ratios will vary ever, ever so slightly. But I mean, you're talking about like 0.1% expense ratio on these index mutual funds if it's the U.S. market. As opposed to, remember, the 1% asset management fee, loads, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that Vanguard is the one that offers the most index funds. Oh, that excellent question. Three months worth of expenses, which is another reason why you, know, you need to know what your expenses are. So when I talk about expenses, rent, transportation, food, and um, you know, just absolute necessities. So three months, that will, that, that's the general. Some people will say six months, but sort of in that area. It also depends a little bit on the job. If you, if you work on Wall Street or in some of those businesses, you all know that you come in on a Friday morning or a Monday morning and there's the pink slip and, and by two o'clock you're out, okay? Some other jobs, you have two or four months um, notice uh, if you're in a school system or something like that, of course, it's a yet again a completely different situation. So you, you have to look a little bit at your job situation. I just wonder, do you have any concern if, say, all of your mutual funds are just with Vanguard, just with Fidelity, as opposed to having all, several different Right. This gentleman asked, um, would I have any concern about having all of your mutual funds with one company like a Vanguard, like a Fidelity, like a Geobra? I have no concerns about that, but I certainly know that some people feel better if they have some with Fidelity and some with Vanguard. Um, I'm one of those people that likes simplicity, so if I can pull it all up on one sheet, I like that when I open up my computer. But, you know, it doesn't have to be. It, whatever you feel comfortable with. The ownership of Fidelity and Vanguard are very, very different, and so you might want to look into who own those companies. Remember, you don't have money in the companies. You have money in stocks and bonds, right? So I, that's an important distinction as well. What degree of international diversification do you feel is appropriate, and does that change over time? 
Yeah, it has changed over time, but I, you know, moving forward, um, just to give you a base, uh, the United States of America stock market is about 45% of the global rough numbers. And of course, the non-US stock market is growing, right, because of China, India, and so forth. So you could say, well, if I had half and half, I pretty much have the globe, right? That's uncomfortable for some people. So, but that's sort of where you want to move then down from there. I would say 30% in non-US stocks, absolutely. And, and make sure, make very sure you include emerging markets. You take three countries, China, India, and Indonesia, one third of the world's population. That's where the growth is. It can be any other way. So like it or not like it, but that's where it is. So just make sure that you include all of that in your total portfolio. And there are some, ex again, there are index mutual funds for non-US uh, as well. Uh, so it's, it's quite easy to do. It's quite easy to do. Regardless of the age of the investor? Um, well, I wouldn't say if you were, you know, 65 or 75 that 30% of, of your total investment portfolio should be in non-U.S. stocks. You would have to scale it down. By the time you retire, you probably should be about 50% in stocks and 50% in bonds. Because most of us retire, let's say, around 65 or thereabouts. Uh, we still have another 20 plus years. See, that's the issue. And we need to have growth. You, you, can't, you can't do it without it. It's been a lot of investing about investing in gold. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, gold in 1981 was 800, 900. Today it's 750. I don't think so. I mean, some people feel good about having some gold coins and things, and I think that's fine. I don't think of that as an investment per se. Is there a magic formula for that retirement? How much is enough? How much is enough? Good question. When is enough enough? When is enough enough is when you have a very good idea about what your expenses are. Okay, pick a number. My expenses are $5,000 a month. And remember, the mortgage is gone, right? Mortgage is gone. My expenses are $5,000 a month. That's $60,000 a year on an after-tax basis. How can I generate from my portfolio after tax $60,000 a year? And then, of course, if you still have many years, then you have some inflation things you want to take care of. But that's how you do it. That's how you do it. And then also, of course, you get some income from Social Security. Can we look at it? It's about yay big. Put on Obama's energy plan. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, well, I just heard this morning he was making a radio address. Uh, I come from a country that is, uh, the landscape is windmills. Do you know where I come from? Denmark. Okay. 20% of the energy in Denmark comes from windmills. Gorgeous sight. Most of them are out in the water. It's beautiful. Now, I grew up conserving. Okay, Second World War after Second World War, kind of in that area. I turn off the light when I leave a room. All this kind of good stuff, right? 
we need to do so many things in this country. Alternative energies, conservation. The utility companies are losing. Did you see that? Yesterday in the paper, 5 to 10% consumption. Utility companies, it must be because we're all using the new light bulbs, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing. I, I don't know what else. Um, we need to do all of those things. Uh, how much Obama, I mean, energy independence, excuse me, foreign oil independence, of course, is completely ridiculous. We're not going to be independent of foreign oil. It, it you know, it's not going to happen. Al Gore, we're not going to have any more coal. 30% of our energy comes from coal. We can't just not do that anymore. I mean, there, there are a lot of plans out there, but some of them are just not realistic. Um, but I'm hoping that we do lots of things. Again, conservation, uh, nuclear power, windmill power, solar, and so forth. I'm hoping, but now that gasoline is back down below $2, we're all getting a little bit um, careless again, right? So, but I had a question way back there. Yes, go ahead. What should it be about what? Yeah, that depends. I mean, if you if um, some of you are f familiar with something called life cycle funds, and what they do is they'll have a name, and then they have a year behind them. And my suggestion to you is look at the year that you turned seventy. Just think in your mind. Okay, nineteen or two thousand twenty, let's say. Then find the fund that is close to that year, okay? And what will happen is if you invest in that, as you get closer and closer towards that age 70, and that may not be your retirement, but that's what I'm using because we live so much longer, um, the portfolio becomes more conservative. So it's done automatically for you. It goes from 90%, 85, 80, 75, 70, so forth and so on. In all of the major... Fidelity, Vanguard, Tibo, Price, American Funds, even TIAA Craft today has some of those life cycle funds. And I highly recommend those because it really relieves you of a lot of, oh, you know, I got to look at this, I got to do this, and so forth. They're doing it for you. One more. <laughs> Long term care insurance. Um, if you're in your 50s, go ahead and check it out. Uh, if you're older or younger, don't bother. Why? It's cheapest when you're in your 50s. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.